Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. This is another Chiquitasode. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this Chiquitasode, we bring you an interview with the amazing Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleef, a dope professor at Temple University in the Department of Criminal Justice. She has a new book coming out, and in this interview, she speaks about the experiences in Chicago that led to the book. And she also gives some words of wisdom and power for Latinas and people of color generally. The book is called Kirk County, Racism and Injustice in America's Largest Criminal Court. It was it had a lot of amazing insight, and I feel like you all should go and get it. All right. Uh, but before we go to the Chiquita Sode, I just wanted to take a minute. And Yvette, how are you? How are you doing? How's uh, We're now four weeks into law school. How's that going? Um, it's good. I For my thrill year, I've moved off campus and I've been like navigating, dealing with the long commute. But to be honest, it's much better for my mental health, even though like sitting in a car for an hour is really annoying. It's honestly worth it because my mental health is much better now that I'm not on campus all the time. Yeah. Cynthia, what about you? How are you? Uh, I'm good. I think I'm struggling trying to stay on top of everything uh, and trying to manage that. But I think most recently what I'm struggling with is... I had a conversation with um, a white male colleague of mine, and he he took this, I challenged him in class on what mm-hmm. something he was saying, and he took it as a personal attack, mm-hmm. and that I was just looking to come down at him on anything. Mm-hmm. And that's just really made me cons- like question like how I come off to people and how I engage with people because I was really disheartened that like when I was trying to intellectually engage with someone and and just like because in- I was listening to him and I disagreed with him but I wanted to engage him with that that it came off as an attack. Mm. So like I'm worried about like this angry Latina stereotype mm-hmm. and what that means for my professional interactions with people. So I'm trying to work through that right now. I mean, I'll just say that like. It's just so funny that a white man wouldn't be able to see that this was an intellectual debate because supposedly, like, they're the holders of objectivity and reason and, like, like Latina women are all about emotion and feeling. And I feel like this is just a perfect example of how that's actually not true and that trope is used to silence you. Yeah. Yeah, but we'll, we'll work through it. I'll give you all an update if I, like, come to some sort of emotional resolution on this. Um, but, yeah, so we'll go into the interview just a quick note about the quality. We, we recorded this over Skype, so that's like a bit of a static, but like really like listen to it. I think it's it's one of the most powerful conversations I've had in, in a while. And despite the quality, like I really, really think this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Enjoy. Hello, listeners. We have the great privilege today of interviewing Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleef. Uh, she is an assistant professor at Temple University in the Department of Criminal Justice. She is the recipient of the 2014 2015 Ford Foundation Fellowship Postdoctoral Award, the 2015 New Scholar Award, awarded by the American Society of Criminology's Division on People of Color and Crime. Uh, She has an award-winning book, which is primarily what we'll be talking about today, uh, titled Crook County, Racism and Injustice in America's Largest Criminal Court, which is actually uh, printed by Stanford University Press. So I was like, that's a good job, Stanford, and doing that. (laughs) Um, 
and uh, she was an NAACP Image Award finalist, a two-time Prose Award winner, and the recent winner of three Best Book Distinctions by the American Sociological Association. So all that is to say that she is a certified cerebrona uh, and has <laughs> been for a long time. Yes. Uh, so, Nicole, thank you for being here with us. And uh, to start off, we were just wondering if you could start off with telling us a little bit about yourself as a person, like aside from your professional work, like anything you'd like to share. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. That might be the greatest honor of all, right? <laughs> uh, so I am a, Ch a Chicagoan, a native Chicagoan, and a first-generation college student, a college graduate. Um, so to me, you know, the significance of um, being a Pell Grant recipient and a first-generation student that ended up getting into Northwestern was pretty unbelievable. And um, I felt, you know, that with it came a lot of responsibility to do good in the world. And I'm sure mm -hmm. if you're a first-generation college student, you, you feel that, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're first-generation and a person of color, you doubly feel that. Yeah. And so that... That, you know, took me on a journey while I was an undergrad to try to, you know, to find where I could, you know, have my own voice and my own place. And I, I think my initial um, exploration of the legal system and of the criminal justice system was thinking that I actually wanted to be a prosecutor. You know, I really mm. identified with, like, kind of, you know, feminism and thinking that I would be fighting for the rights of um, victims. And I landed my first uh, internship working at the state's attorney in Chicago. And what I did not expect to see were so many black and brown men being paraded through those courts. Mm. They, in some cases, were younger than me, and I was only 21 years old. Wow. And they weren't charged with violent crimes. They were charged with crimes of poverty and addiction and mental illness. And, right. and uh, as one of the only people of color in that space, it became uh, a really powerful vantage point to start looking at the system and really questioning my own beliefs about the system, the preconceived notions that I brought in, mm -hmm. you know, and a certain naivete about what the system is going to do and who it's working for. Mm -hmm. And uh, the interesting dynamic in all of this is that even though it was a you know, person of color, because I was from Northwestern and, my, and I'm so light-skinned, there was a t all the prosecutors and judges really kind of assumed me to be white. Like a lot um. of them thought, you know, this must be another white, you know, privileged student from Northwestern. And at the time, my, my name was uh, was different. It, it was an Italian name that my mom had uh, kind of forced me to have, you know, after she got divorced. And my father is Gonzalez, and, um, and he come from a hair, you know, a strong Mexican Chicano heritage. And really, I, I was, you know, deprived of a lot of that. And that name Martirano really made my racial identity very ambiguous. But I realized in that space that that was really powerful because if you are a light-skinned Chicana and everybody thinks you're, you're white and all these white folks begin speaking in ways that they might not actually speak if they knew that a person of color was in the room. Yeah. yeah. That actually became the inspiration for this book is, is that uh, racially passing or being assumed to be white gave me the vantage point to in some ways expose injustice and privilege and power and how it was being enacted in violent ways on people of color that could have been my neighbors and um, my family. And I think one of the most painful things in all of this is that as I reconnected with my paternal family, the Gonzalez side, one of the most shameful and sad things and terrible things that they broke the news to me when I was, uh, just as after I graduated undergrad, is they said that my cousin Joel had been charged with uh, attempted murder in a gang crime. And he was shot... Uh, he shot at someone before he could be shot at. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right? We don't think about the blurred boundaries between defendants and victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like a calling. In some ways, what it meant was that Joelle was processed in the same court system that I had privileged access to study. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that, I thought, you know what? I had always asked myself, what, it was, what if it was my family in those courts? What if it was my brother or cousin? What would that mean? And would I have to speak out? And that really, to me, felt like calling that I, I needed to collect data and go into this court system and really expose it uh, in a book, it, you know, it, in the news. Um, that, that was the sort. So it was really a both an academic and a professional and a personal calling. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about, I feel like, what you started off saying, like, for first generation, for people of color in academia, like, the boundaries between what's professional and what's personal is, is like, there's so much blurriness. Like, our existence is political, especially in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and the battle in which to, you had mentioned, oh, good job for Stanford that they, they published uh, your book. Well, you know, I've visited so many law schools, and I've done you know, keynotes and, and events around the book, and I've actually been amazed at the number of students of color that are law students, but they're worried about addressing racial uh, injustice. Yeah. They don't want to be the person of color that is only talking about race. They don't want to be labeled or marked or marginalized. And I guess my feeling about that is you're going to be labeled, marked, and marginalized anyway, so you <laughs> might as well expose truth and injustice, right? So I had to think, go through that journey in my own head Right, and there was a lot of publishers that were re- that were very hesitant in the in the era of Obama to want mm. to publish this book. So I am glad that Stanford really took a risk. They took a risk on a first-time author, scholar of color. They didn't know me from you know from anything. And there's an amazing scholar named Laura Gomez. I don't know if you know. She's a law professor at UCLA. She mm. is amazing. Former president of law, um, the Law Society Association, and. God bless her because she kind of vouched for me and says, you know, you really need to take this woman seriously. She mm-hmm. really has amazing data. She really has an interesting way of talking and exposing racism in the in the criminal justice system. And Stanford really relied on uh, this other professor of color to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of open their eyes and listen to me. So I'm forever grateful, and that's what I hope to do for other folks that come after, right? We have a responsibility. Yeah, that's amazing, and I feel like, it's a really important reminder for us that um, as we climb, we also need to lift up others who are coming after us. So yeah. th- thank you for that. Yeah, someone once told me a really good quote, like, "Why? what do I care about breaking um, the ceiling if there's still people in the basement? And it's just like you have to be doing both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. To just... I, and I think about that when I publish, too. I mean, the more people ask me, well, why did you publish this book on Stanford Press? I go, well, you know, part of it was because to legitimize critical race theory as a field that deserves the stature as any part of study, as constitutional law, or as any part of Mm -hmm. studying law, right? That that's not just some marginalized uh, discipline, critical race scholars, they have been marginalized, but taking that that perspective and putting it front and center into the core sociology, into the core of criminology, and into the core of uh, legal education as well. Yeah. 
So just to transition a bit into talking more about your book, um, one of the things that struck me was that you noted that uh, racial disparities don't just exist at the sentencing level or at rates of incarceration, that also there's violations of due process that are also racialized. And I found that striking because um, I think a lot, of a lot of lawyers and law students justify the unfairness in the system by saying, well, the, you know, even though the outcomes are unfair, the process itself is fair. Um, the process of getting to those outcomes is fair. Um, so I just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about that and what you saw when you were a clerk at the prosecutor's office in Kirk yeah. County. So I think the biggest lie that we've all been told is that if you have procedure in place, that things are fair. And when you read the letter of the law, it looks like it should be fair, right? When you realize there's a court record, oh, well, then that documentation must be fair. Um, if you read Gideon, you think, well, that lawyer must be competent. That must be fair, right? See, that lawyer's not judging the defendant, right? Mm -hmm. They're giving them a, a zealous advocacy. And I, again, because I was, uh, didn't have a JD when I studied, when I was studying um, uh, the defendants, I didn't really go in having those assumptions that most law students have. Well, like, mm -hmm. oh, well, that must be protected by procedure. I was just like thinking, well, let me see how you practice law. And I was learning it from the lawyers that actually were practicing it. Right? Yeah. So I didn't have those expectations. Um, what you found was that, you know, the defendants were cast in one of two categories. They were either called mopes, which had all the stigmatizing tropes of the N-word, wow. um, the S-word, right? They basically said you're lazy, degenerate, no good. Um, and because in some ways many of those mopes that they categorized were charged with crimes of poverty, crimes of deviance, you know, immorality, it really was a space where you could, in some ways, you know, treat them with a sense of violence because they were they, they needed to be punished. So mm. if you go and look at uh, colorblind racism, there's, there is a, um, the scholarship on colorblind racism talks about creating an us versus them dichotomy, mm. where the us is usually people in power, right? White attorneys in this case. Mm -hmm. The them is usually people with what you would call moral failings. And so whites can rationalize, well, I'm not racist, I just don't like lazy people. <laughs> well, if you think about it, criminal courts is a place where you are giving, empowering white professionals to make such moral judgments, right? right? What else are we there to do in a court other than to decide who is deviant and who is not deviant, who is moral and who is immoral? Yeah. And for them, when they in some ways judge the immorality of a defendant who's been caught in possession of drugs, and they say, oh, that's a mope it becomes an easy place, a kind of a tinderbox in which the criminal distinctions become racial ones. And it becomes so easy because you walk in those courts and basically almost every single person that is a prosecutor or a judge, or even many of the public defenders, they're all white. And you look over at the victims, the defendants, the family members, the witnesses, they're all people of color. And so you have this segregated space, you have these attorneys in power, and these kind of shorthand distinctions between mopes or monsters, which was the code they called violent offenders, becomes yeah. highly racialized. So, for instance, there was a man who didn't speak English, and rather than call a translator to help him, the um, you, you see in the book they, they call him to the they call him up to the podium in front of the judge. He has no attorney, he has no translator, and his wife is kind of hiding in the hallway, possibly because she's undocumented. And the judge says, uh, do you speak English? And he says, you know, a little bit. And he said, and she said, well, did you forget your English? And she starts mocking. No. And the judge stands up, leans over and says, 
what you forgot your English, Mr. Ramirez. Me no speaky English. It oh actually my. mocks him. Uh. When the re- trope that's actually used against Asian Americans, me no speaky English, right? It's, it's, it's a terrible, right, dynamic. And then she ends up waiting for the translator. She finally brings them in. Um, and then off the record, right, and this again is on the record, right? So what would be interesting is to pull the record from that day and see, did some of this racist banter get actually transposed by the court, the court reporter? Mm-hmm. I don't think it did, right? Do you see here her saying me no speak English, right? That's the transcript. And do you realize that she, he doesn't have a translator, he doesn't have an attorney, right? He's highly vulnerable, and they are bending and breaking procedure, right? Protection, procedural protections. You know, and then she ends up ending this interaction by saying, look, the wife's hiding in the hallways. I think he's drunk. It mm. looks like he was um, he was staggering. It looks like he was walking like he had his toenails extracted. So that's an actual quote from the judge. Uh. And it's in earshot of the public, right? So imagine being another person of color in the gallery, a grandmother, an abuelita, someone thinking, Oh my word, right? Are you going to speak up? If your attorney's not there, are you going to be terrified? Absolutely. And just the level of degradation, too. I think mm-hmm. the, uh, the final thing is, and I don't think maybe law students, some law students wouldn't prioritize this, is that man was charged, right, but not convicted. Does he deserve to be degraded by a judge in an American court in that racist manner? You know, I think most of our, the listeners would say no, that that that, that that no one deserves that. So it's not just the violation of his rights, but the absolute humiliation and degradation. And it it I think readers will be def, will be appalled at what you see. You know, a man that asked for a jury trial, they punished him for that, right? If you're cast as a mope, you're unworthy, you're immoral, so you don't deserve a jury, mm-hmm. right? You don't deserve that. So they took an extension cord and pretended to plug him into the wall mm-hmm. as though he was going to be executed. And these pranks were just part of the the general way the courts work. It was camaraderie to the white professionals. And you can imagine that led to a lot of guilt on my part because to have access to be in those places of power, to be able to see these prosecutors, I had to I had to be complicit, at least mm. in my silence, but certainly in how I participated and not sticking up for anybody, not protecting someone who couldn't speak English, not protecting anyone that I saw. As you're speaking, I'm just like, Yvette and I are just like cringing out over here because that, that's just, it's so disgusting and it's so like, it's, I'm just constantly, every day I'm amazed at how much, how much capacity we have to like dehumanize each other. Um, just like as a, as a species, I don't know. Uh, could, I, what, can I you? I find new ways, new reasons that I'm absolutely appalled at humanity well yeah um what so can you tell me a little bit more about the word mope like how do you spell that like what is that coming from like I never heard that before so I think in this in this was the part about the procedure and the law too I can go back so I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to like use the actual n-word but what happened was um in, in Chicago the prosecutors used to use the n-word openly in the 80s like all the way to almost the 90s wow. and they used to have a game called n-word by the pound okay so the game was this. If you convicted a defendant, you tallied the defendant's weight off the case file, and then when you hit one ton, you win. Like, <gasps> they took you out for drinks, etc. So, oh, literally, wow. there was a game, 
they, they called it the one-ton game. That was their, their way of masking the racism. So when it became socially inappropriate to use the N-word, rather than calling it N-word by the pound, they called it the one-ton game. And you can imagine, if, you know, again, as, as law students, imagine uh, realizing that you're convicting people not based on their factual, you know, their factual innocence, their guilt, the evidence, police reports and other types of things, but in literally you're looking at giving great deals to fat defendants, right? Defendants that are weighing a lot mm-hmm. and in order to get the tally up. So they're literally seeing the conviction of people as a game. Mm-hmm. If you're a law, crime and, you know, law and order type person, that should be scary to you because yeah. if, if you are worried about, you know, victim safety, you're, so you're giving good deals to potentially dangerous people because they weigh more. I mean, that's how little regard they have for the law. And I think when you realize that, that they decoded the N-word out of the practice of law, it has to go somewhere. And that's one of the arguments I make is they created a word called mope that had all the, the meanings of the N-word, but didn't get them in trouble on the surface. And they could lie to themselves and say that it was non-racial. And it was, it was yeah, so it's spelled M-O-P-E, mope. And so I kept thinking, well, maybe it's, there's so many acronyms in the criminal court. So a violation of probation, a VOP, right? So your first day on call, FDOC. Uh, I had to learn all those things, so I thought MOBE must have been just another acronym for a criminal charge or an evaluation of something. And when I asked them what it meant, they said, well, let me explain to you. And they point over there, they see that guy over there? And I look, and it was just a defendant, a young man, a black man, for instance. And they'd say, watch. And then they'd say, they'd start to speak in a bonnet. So they'd say, look, all man said it right. Just say, right. Why the judge be like that man? You know this kind of guy. And the, this probation officer tries to explain it further. And he goes, you know, putting some of these guys is like throwing trash in the ocean. They just keep coming back to you. So even in how they understood recidivism, right? So he's like, the, the person is like trash in the ocean. He's going to come back to us. They've reinterpreted kind of legal ideas, criminological ideas about recidivism in ways that are extremely racist, right? That you are trash and that you'll come back to them. And then in some ways, the professionals themselves are dealing with burdens, right? The burden mm-hmm. of, of these low-grade, lazy, degenerate offenders. And that's, you know, in some ways, when you think about case volume and how our criminal courts have so many cases in the era of mass incarceration, uh, you know, it makes sense that these racist tropes in some ways give them, simplify the law for them, mm-hmm. right? If you're a mole, you're not going to get a trial. You're just not. You're not worthy of it. If you're a mole, you don't really need legal evidence. Let's just, you know, barely, the, the, a mope file was like a very tiny file. It meant, they called them dis, easy dispose, D-I-S-P-O-S-E. They could use it as a, a noun, like he's a dispo, meaning you've been discarded, or, or the case is an easy dispo. But again, all of it is in this language. If you decode the language, right, the rhetoric, it's about disposing people. It's about yeah. garbage. When they say shipment, right, you're sentenced and the judge says, okay, you know, move to shipment, that means you are going downstate to prison, right? But shipment sounds a lot like slavery. Mm. We're shipping yeah. bodies and people. So I kind of think, you know, as a cultural sociologist, not as a you know a lawyer, I'm thinking about how have these professionals recoded the law mm. to overtly be a racist system. This is not just in the law, right, how racism could happen, like Terry, right, searches and how suspicion could be racialized. This is actually how they're talking, and they're doing it in broad daylight. So I think this leads us into talking about your explanation of colorblind racism, which I really liked because um, you argued that coded racial language, just like you're talking about, 
uh, makes the expression of colorblind racism quote-unquote a slippery, apparently contradictory rhetorical maze that allows people to hide their racism. And I would say that that defines much of the racism in the Bay Area, you know, quote-unquote good liberals who are still racist, um, but don't grapple with it because they don't see themselves as racist. Um, So I wanted to know what caused you to come to this definition? What did you see that proved it? You've talked about that a bit already, but I don't know if you want to elaborate on it and just what the effects of it are. Right. I mean, let's be let's be clear. You know, a lot of the, the white prosecutors and judges in that book are Democrats. They are liberals mm. living in communities that vote for Clintons and all types. Say yeah. that one more time <laughs> for the people in the back. I mean, Chicago is a very it's a democratic city, mm. and so but it's also a racist city as uh, as cities across the nation are. Right? If you have segregation, if you have um, you know failing education systems, if you have you know, ghettos and deprive people of dignity and resources, you know, those are fueled by structural racism. But Eduardo Bonilla Silva is now the incoming president. We have actually two Latinos that are going to be president back to back. We have Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who will be the American sociological president next year. And then we have Mary Romero, who's she's going to be the following year. So it's a really epic time in sociology right now for Latinos. Uh, just in general, but he came up with the term colorblind racism, and it was this idea that, you know, you're saying, well, you realize in some ways that being racist is no longer socially acceptable, although unfortunately mm-hmm. now in Trump era, it's a badge of pride for some some people, right. um, but again, imagine Obama era, it was, people were literally writing articles saying we're post-racial, I'm like, really? I don't, <laughs> I don't think that, like, and I said I wanted to do a dissertation on racism, I seriously had some white advisors that acted as though I wanted to study, like, unicorns and fairies, they're like, well, how do you find racism? Oh, and I was like, are you crazy? It's everywhere, right, because they're not living in our skin, they're not living mm-hmm. as a person of color, they don't see these microaggressions and overt aggressions, they don't see that as part of their daily lives. Right. And so, to me, then, it became kind of an empirical challenge. Like, how do I measure this? What do I do, right? I, I think critical race scholars say, I don't have to, I don't need data to tell you how I experience prejudice and power, right? That's all, because the data is usually riddled by, like, white assumptions, a lot of white assumptions anyway. But Neil Steele's work was a study of people talking about race. And so what you hear, uh, he does this kind of rhetorical analysis about how people were coding out, like, again, I don't like, it's not that I don't like Mexicans, right? I just don't like lazy people mm. that drink too much, right? And so, hey, that's Mexicans. And so, But it's not about that. It's not about race. And I have plenty of Mexican friends that love <laughs> um, So, or I work with Mexicans, and they're really nice people, the nice ones, you know, the, the yeah. So, I think, to me, what the great challenge was, was can you show white practicing racism and making it feel like it's non-racial? And so, for instance, how does, I mean, to me, the, the woman yelling and berating the Latino defendant and mocking him and, you know, flipping into a racist script, right? That's, to me, that's overtly racist. Mm-hmm. But when you start doing this cultural coding of it's not about his race, it's about immorality, one prosecutor says, I don't see race, I see a case. That's it. Mm. So that's that's the legal version of, of I'm not I'm not racist, but right. right. But you know, in some cases too, like one of the most overt, uh, one of the liberal uh, white judges, he was in a position. Excuse me, it was a she. She was in a position where she was she would give black names, and when they sounded funny to her, she would make fun of them. Ugh. So, um, and when I didn't laugh, 
she was like, she stopped the entire plea bargain and she's like explained it over to me. She was like, let me tell you. And she actually brought me in. She's like, well, so me and my daughters, I find like the best black names and then I bring them back and we talk about it. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is how you create the next generation racist, right? Mm -hmm. She would find, um, like, I think it was like Leveric was the name. And so I, in the book, I decode the name Leveric. It's, you know, a black mother saying that perhaps love, right, she feels this emotion of love, and maybe her partner was named Eric, and love Eric is the son, right? Mm. Um, and, and think of all the love that's in that naming of a child, like the mm-hmm. sacredness of naming a child. I, I just thought, to me, it was such a degrading thing that it didn't even occur to her that black mothers would have that sense of love for their babies, right? Yeah. That that was like an anointing, if you will, of, of something sacred to that baby, and now he was he was the punchline for a joke, right? So that that's how I think the coding. Once you code it like this, it really obscures to the to the white professionals that it is racist in nature, and they can flip and be contradictory. So my guess is maybe when she goes home into her neighborhood, she is possibly marching for social justice, <laughs> but in her job and practice in life, right? She's able to rationalize and say it's not so racist. I can't be racist because, but. The culture is a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it almost feels like this is a, what they have to do to be able to sleep at night, and this is, like, what they have to do to deal with their own, like, a cognitive dissonance of, like, well, I'm voting Democrat, but I also don't like people of color, so, like, how do I, like, how do I live that way? Um, yeah, and I, I like the, the, the idea of the dissonance, which is, I think at the time when you walked into criminal courts and we were living through an era of Obama and it seemed like this racial utopia that we had a symbolic person in power, right? He was still deporting Latinos. Yeah. He was still, right? Yeah. There was still segregation. There's still poverty. And this powerful documentary of a man in uh, the Cook County Jail. He was like strapped to the, you know, he was detoxing and they were, um, he's literally strapped on the stretcher with like a straitjacket type thing where he can't move. And it's, it's one of the most tragic scenes. And to see if he's coherent, they say, sir, who, who's the president? He's like, we are in Obama time. We are, and he's, he is in some ways, you know, celebrating this world we live in, but yet, you know, the enormous amount of racism that was going on, that is going on, that was going on, seemed to be kind of fleeting, you know, and, and my goal was to capture it in practice because one of the things I saw when I walked, walked in that court was the sense of dissonance, which is, wait a second, why is every single person of color here a defendant, right? You're really seeing the new Jim Crow in real life, and that's why I encourage people to go to these courtrooms so they can really see for their own eyes, right? The, the, the jail in Chicago, get this, is 72 football fields of uh-huh. pre-trial incarceration. People charged but not convicted, 72 football fields, and they place that in Little Village, which is the home of Mexican immigrants, mm-hmm. right? They put, people walk to the stores, they walk their babies next to those jailhouse walls mm-hmm. every single day. And that's, and that's the power of it, right, is that it does create a dissonance for whites because I really do believe at my heart is that people don't wake up and say, today I want to subjugate and abuse people. I don't, that doesn't motivate them to come to work. They say, I want to fight for justice, mm-hmm. I want to fight for victims. But I think the level of racism that we have in our culture, in our cognitive you know, frameworks in our brain, is what changes and complicates that and how good people can also be very racist and do very bad things. Um, okay, uh, we're going to be totally respectful of your time and only ask you two more questions. Um, but before the last one, I kind of wanted to know, because we've been talking a lot about Cook County, 
Do uh-huh. you feel like your experience was singular or do you feel like Cook County, like we've heard a lot about Chicago and just corruption and whatnot. And so it seemed like an extreme in some ways, but do you think that what you saw in, in Chicago and Cook County can be, is that like a good way to think about all prosecutors office or just for folks who are thinking like, oh, but that's, that's only there. That's not everywhere. Yeah. So I thought of that criticism. I really, you know, maybe it's because I kind of, uh, you know, being in Northwestern and getting to see such immense privilege and having this kind of privilege myself of being so light skinned, I could really kind of think about what would in some ways be the white criticism of this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, something's wrong with Chicago. And I'm always thinking, well, really, you think racism only lives in Chicago? <laughs> but it's real, right? Yeah. But, okay, that's a criticism out there. So how do I, as a social scientist, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And so my friend, Armando Larmian, he's amazing, a professor at Berkeley. I should all look him up. He was doing a study of a large West Coast jail. We, we keep it anonymous to protect the identity of the, the respondents. But what we were both finding is that in the jail and in the courts, right, two different jurisdictions in two different parts of the criminal justice system, the professionals were using the same racial tropes about the system. Mm -hmm. So the second stage of what my work was trying to team up with him as well and say, listen, not only is it not just the criminal courts, but the jailers in another space, right, one of the major cities in our our nation Mm -hmm. with caseloads, is also they're also doing the same thing and there we talk about welfare stigma so the more we don't have social service provisions for the poor right we don't have really a welfare state mm-hmm. um, the poor are starting to interact with the criminal justice system as the primary means where they get any type of, of welfare or good you know mental health uh, drug treatments medical care so what we found is that because of that you know criminal justice practitioners in both courts and jails they start to think of themselves as social service providers and they start to think of the defendants and, and the people in jail as welfare abusers. So we talk about welfare stigmas, which are like intersectional stigmas about race, class, and gender that are mobilized by these professionals to more thwart access. Now, uh, to thwart access to the jail, we're going to pull you out. You don't get a bed in this jail. They call them beds, right? Again, let's think of the language. Like, is it a hotel? No, you don't get a bed on our watch. Um, or due process. You're not, you're remote. You're not good enough for due process. It's like a denial on the surface, that seems not so bad. You're like, well, I get pushed out of jail. That's great. But really what it means is that you get to mark people with a criminal record. Mm-hmm. And all the consequences of being a felon have less rights. We call them a, I call it a ceremonial charade. Your rights are just a kind of a mockery. And you don't get any of the medical care or care that you, you possibly could get if it, you know, it existed in a decent way. So to me, this is the, the ultimate kicker, which is you are too unworthy to even be in our jail. That's how you get privilege. It's punishment is a privilege, and you're not even privileged enough to have a punishment. Wow. To me, that's the ultimate level of racism. And mm-hmm. seeing it in two sites in two different places, my hope is to spell some of that criticism that, oh, something must be wrong in Chicago. Thank you so much. That was so amazing, and I'm, I'm still marinating with everything that you just said. <laughs> Um, but just to wrap up, um, can, you know, I think one of the things that we want to do here is to inspire young Latinas, like Latinx people in general, um, to go into higher education, uh, whether that be law school or, um, getting a PhD. And so we wanted to have you share what brought you to academia. You talked about that a, a little bit in the beginning, but also if you could give some words of advice to our listeners who might want to enter academia themselves. Yeah, you know, academia, I will say, is a hard business, if you will, um, but, but it's no different and no, 
I would say no different than other industries. I worked actually in advertising um, beforehand. I once worked in the White House, was when I was an undergrad for the chief of staff. So I had a lot of different vantage points before I went into academia to see like what the world was like. I think that's mm-hmm. a good thing to do is to try to see, you know, what's what is really your passion. And I think for folks going into academia, I think chasing that passion, whatever it is, is the most important thing. Like and to me Finding ways to expose the criminal justice system in Chicago was the ultimate drive. It was like a type of hunger in which it didn't matter how many advisors, white advisors didn't believe in me. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. You can't steal my joy. I am yes. going to do this. I I just felt this sense of I just felt this sense of importance in my voice. And that doesn't mean I was always certain that I could do it, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't feel I, I felt immense amounts of fear. You know, I talk in the book a lot about my fear. Fear, desperate fear in those spaces. It felt dangerous to me. It felt I was harassed by the police, harassed by the sheriff's office. At any time, I was worried the prosecutors would, like, you know, maybe take my notes, subpoena them. I didn't know the certainty of it all. Um, but I felt this deep hunger to pursue this type of justice and expose it in, the, in using the talents that I have. And I think if you decide to go in academia, great. But if you decide to be just a you know badass attorney and like fight fighting on the front lines as a public defender, you know do that like just just don't let anybody steal that level of of um, of, of joy of power you know like um, Juno Diaz is one of my favorite writers mm-hmm. and he wrote that um, essay in the New York Times after Trump and yes. um, it was about radical hope yes I was like. I felt demoralized. I woke up in my own neighborhood, walked my son to school, and there was swastikas mm. with Trump's name on our on the walls in Philly. I thought, oh my God, right? How do I protect myself from this? How do I protect my son from this? How do you how do you live in this era? Like, what's it like? And I think that idea of radical hope, which is you know our our ancestors, our generations of people have lived enormous amounts of suffering, and yet they grow and they're resilient. And they fight. And he says, you know, we never thought this shit would be easy. Like, I love I love how he writes in this human way, right? Like, who said this shit was going to be easy? It's not. It's, it, it's definitely not. But we are hardwired to our ancestors mm-hmm. to have the fight in us to do the things that are going to make this world better. And it is a slow and difficult process. But it is not one that we give up on and say, you know what? I surrender. Like, the fact that you guys have this show and are doing this podcast, it shows that you guys have a resilience. You're like, there is a void. I will fill it. I will step up right now. And that's how I felt about my book. There is a void. I will fill it. I will step up right now. And Anita Alvarez was the prosecutor in Chicago, right? A woman of color, a Latina. She came from the neighborhood where the jail is. And she created more racial harm in that city. Mm, Wow. More racial harm. There were men and women of color being abused and misogynized the police, it was terrible. It was this type of, it read like war crimes, what they were allowing to do to yeah. people of color. Yeah. And the prosecutors looked the other way. They could have done justice. They could have charged those police officers. And at every point, she chose to be a coward. And I remember saying to my friend Armando, as we were working on our papers, I was like, you know, I'm just going to send her a book and like, do all this stuff. And I was like, I got to think bigger than that. What are you talking about? When they released the Laquan McDonald video and they showed that young man being shot 16 times and they were trying to cover it up and Anita Alvarez would not charge the officer who shot a young black man 16 times. 
I said, you know what, no, this has to stop. And that's when I wrote my first piece, Anita's Army, Rank and File Racism and the Power to Prosecute. And that became what Black Lives Matter and other activists were using in the city. And Anita Alvarez, she ends up losing her job. They made her into a hashtag called Buy Anita. <laughs> and I think this should be a lesson for all of us, right? At any moment, we could, we could be empowered. She was a powerful woman, but she wasn't doing righteous and good things. And we, as women of color, as people of color, it, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these things fall on our shoulders. However, we can choose to be righteous. We can choose to be powerful. And you know what? The powerful rights among us that are doing this great work, if you're not doing your part and you're a woman of color, we're coming after you, right? Mm, you will lose yes. your job. We will take, take a stand. And yes. Kim Fox is now a progressive prosecutor, a woman of color in that position. My hope is that she will do what's righteous and change that office, right? But she's on watch, too. Right. Because we all got to move this, uh, this this movement forward together, right? We yeah. all got to do it together. And I think it's the hope that sustains us, and it's it's cheering each other on and celebrating each other when we when we have these moments. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much. Blessing. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. This is amazing. Yes, it, it really was. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Well, we really hoped y'all enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed speaking with her. We found it to be super powerful and, and we hope you did too. Make sure to check out our website if you want to follow up on like the different books and the different um, folks that she talked about. We'll post links to all of that online. Um, I also really quickly wanted to plug the Podcasterio Fest, which I will be attending. Cynthia has the final, so she unfortunately won't be able to attend, but I'll be holding down the fort there. <laughs> it's on Sunday, November 19th at La Plaza de, la, de Arte y Cultura in Los Angeles. So if there's any listeners who live in LA, please, please come out. I'd love to meet you. Oh, and then one final note, folks, is we're going to post um, Nicole's like Facebook and Twitter handle and send her love notes. Like If you found her as, as wonderful as we did, please send her love notes because she did mention to us she gets a lot of hate mail, a lot of racist eat letters. So we want to counter that and show that we care about her and mm -hmm. we find her work necessary and inspiring. Yeah, definitely. All right, we'll see y'all later. Bye. <laughs>